0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, October fifth, two 2010. And today marks a milestone. The 150th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Those 150 podcasts add up to more than 36 hours worth of discussion and analysis of interest to the tax credit community, specifically about the Long income housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, historic tax credit, and renewable energy tax credit. The Tax Credit Tuesday podcast has also been downloaded more than 69,000 times since it was launched in 2007. I invite feedback on the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast to help us make the next 150 podcasts even better. Please share your suggestions for improvement or ideas for topics that you'd like to hear. You can send an email to cpas at novaco.com or send me an email, michael.novogradic at novaco.com. This week, I'll share a quick update on what's in store for Congress. I'll also discuss recent comments from a representative of the Joint Committee on Taxation regarding the codification of the Economic Substance Doctrine. In our low income housing cash credit discussion, I'll examine the newly posted firm market rents for 2011. I will also review Grace Robertson's recently released IRS LIHC Newsletter number 41, as well as I'll discuss potential changes to NCSHA's recommended practices and proposed changes to California's readiness scoring regulations. On the New Market Tax Credit's front, I'll share highlights from a newsletter from the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, that discusses banks' New Market Tax Credit investments. This week's historic tax credit topic is a preview of an article from the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits with tips on repairing and restoring windows in historic tax credit projects. Moving on to renewable energy, I'll discuss two Senate bills that would extend to energy tax incentives and the potential impact of the financial reform bill on renewable energy tax credit investment. Finally, I'll close with two tax credit tidbits. If you're ready, let's get started. We start off the General Tax Credit News section news that Congress adjourned last week. They adjourned after passing a continuing resolution that allows the continued funding of federal agencies at fiscal year 2010 levels. The continuing resolution lasts through December 3rd. Congress is expected to reconvene for a short one-week session on November 15th after the November elections and is likely to consider party leadership positions for the 112th Congress. Reports indicate that it's unlikely that major substantive issues such as the tax extenders bill, will be addressed before Congress adjourns again on November 19th. Lawmakers are then expected to return again on November 29th, and there they're expected to consider at least a few substantial pieces of legislation. These pieces of legislation that they're expected to consider include a possible omnibus appropriations bill or another continuing resolution to keep the government funded, the defense authorization bill, extension of the Bush tax cuts, and the tax extenders bill. It should be noted that Congress's agenda for the lame duck session will be greatly impacted by the outcome of the November midterm elections. One area that we've been tracking that affects all tax credits is the economic substance doctrine. BNA reported last week that the work done by the Joint Committee on Taxation in identifying some basic transactions where the economic substance doctrine is not expected to apply should not, that's right, not be viewed as an angel's list. As most listeners will recall, in the Joint Committee on Taxation's technical explanation of the Revenue Provisions of the Health Reform Act, footnote 344 specifically, there's guidance related to the application of the Economic Substance Doctrine to certain tax credits. Basically, the footnote says that the codification of the Economic Substance Doctrine is not intended to disallow the realization of the tax benefits of a transaction that's consistent with the Congressional purpose for which the tax benefits were designed. The footnote specifically names the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, Energy Production and Investment Tax Credits, New Markets Tax Credits, and Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credits. Now, speaking at the fall meeting of the American Bar Association's Section of Taxation in Toronto, Christine Roth, the Joint Committee on Taxation's Legislation Council, And Internal Revenue Service detailee, she said that although the Joint Committee report on the legislation to codify the doctrine did set out several basic transactions where the doctrine is not generally expected to apply, the Joint Committee on Taxation does not consider that list an angel list, nor does she expect that the Treasury Department will issue such a list. Ms. Roth said she expects any analysis would be based on the actual facts and circumstances of a specific transaction. Now, numerous groups, including the Novigradic long Compensating Tax Credit and New Market Tax Credit Working Groups, are continuing to seek specific guidance from the Treasury Department regarding the Joint Committee on Taxation's footnote 344. We'll continue to monitor developments in this area and apprise you as these, the area warrants. In long Compensating Tax Credit news, I'd like to first report that the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, has published the final Fair Market Rents, FMRs, for fiscal year 2011. FMRs are used to determine rent payment amounts for several programs, including the Housing Choice Voucher Program. The new FMRs are effective on October 1, 2010. Next week, we'll give more detail on the potential impact of the FMRs on the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program. In other LHTC news, last week, Grace Robertson at the IRS released her 41st issue of the Low Income Housing Credit Newsletter. The LIHC newsletter provides a forum for networking and communicating technical knowledge. Now, it's important to note that the contents of the newsletter should not be used or cited as authority for setting or sustaining a technical position. Now, the lead article in the newest edition discusses auditing partnerships. Because long term tax credit projects are owned by partnerships, this discussion is obviously of particular interest. In the article, Ms. Robertson discusses the audit techniques that are required by the IRS's Internal Revenue Manual. This edition of the Newsletter also discusses the difference between disallowing credits and recapturing credits under the long term tax credit program. Copies of this and prior LIHC newsletters are also available online at www.taxcredithousing.com simply go to the LIHTC menu and click on IRS Guidance and then select the link to IRS LIHTC newsletters. That's on the menu on the left-hand side of the page. Switching to credit allocating agency news, last week Novogratz and Company submitted a comment letter to the National Council of State Housing Agencies on potential changes to their low-income housing tax credit recommended practices. NCSHA's recommended practices in housing tax credit administration have been developed over the life of the program by the state administrators themselves, and they've allowed states to achieve program excellence while maintaining the flexibility they need to best meet their unique and diverse affordable housing needs. NCSHA and its members reconsider the recommended practices periodically, especially when the LHTC market experiences significant change to ensure that recommended practices remain appropriate to today's LIHTC program. A copy of Novogradny Company's comments on the most recent proposed changes can be found online at www.taskcredithousing.com. Our final LHTC topic relates to California's proposed change to the LHTC readiness scoring regulations. Last week, the California Task Force Allocation Committee proposed a change regarding readiness scoring for its nine percent low housing task credit projects. The proposed regulation change would allow 9% LHTC project sponsors 180 days rather than the current 150 days to close their construction period financing and obtain building permits. The California Tax Allocation Committee, or TCAC, says it is responding in part to a request from the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD. HUD. HUD requested that they oftentimes need to extend the loan closing period to 180 days for projects seeking FHA-insured financing. However, in an explanation of the proposed change, TCAC notes that its staff is also aware of several circumstances that may delay loan closing for the highest quality projects, those beyond those projects seeking FHA financing. Therefore, rather than create an exception for FHA-insured financing only, the proposed change would apply to all 9% projects. TCAC says extending the readiness requirement to 180 days would continue to assure timeliness and would continue to push projects to commence construction as early as possible. The agency also notes that the proposed change would also permit projects to forego incurring some costs, such as those associated with detailed architectural plans, until after they've secured a tax credit reservation. TCAC will hold a public hearing on October 5th to discuss the proposal, and they're also accepting written comments through October 22nd. Moving to New Market Tax Credit news, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, OCC, last week published the fall edition of Community Development's Investments, its online newsletter. The fall edition provides a guide for national banks seeking a wide range of community and economic development investments under the Public Welfare Investment Authority. Under this authority, national banks may make investments that otherwise are not expressly permitted under the National Bank Act. This newsletter highlights the various types of public welfare investments that national banks have made in small businesses, including new market tax credits. It describes how banks can invest in and support community development corporations, community development financial institutions, CDFIs, small business development companies, as well as obtain various types of federal tax credits. In this discussion of the new market tax credits, The OCC reports that in 2009, 13 banks or entities associated with banks received $770 million in new market tax credit allocations. The newsletter also notes that banks are significant investors in new market tax credit funds and investments, even when they do not participate directly by requesting a new market tax credit allocation. In 2009, the OCC specifically approved more than $185 million in new market tax credit investments under the Public Welfare Investment Authority. The Community Development Investments newsletter can be accessed on the OCC's website at www.occ.gov. That's www.occ.gov. In historic tax credit news, the Journal of Tax Credits has published an excellent article with tips for window restoration and replacement, specifically with respect to Historic Tax Credit properties. As developers of historic buildings know, funding a historic building renovation with Historic Tax Credits (HTCs) can be an uncertain undertaking. Historic tax credits are not finally awarded until after the National Park Service NPS, certifies that the rehabilitation is consistent with the historic character of the building. The NPS does not certify the building until after the developer completes millions of dollars of renovations. Although NPS issues guidance on the program, it does judge each building on a case-by-case basis, so there's no guarantee that materials used in one building will be compliant on another building. One area in which this can have a significant effect is in the repair and replacement of a project's windows. The NPS has strict guidelines for this most visible of features on a building's facade, and window repair and replacement is often one of a developer's largest expenses. In an article in the October Journal of Tax Credits, Novogratz Company presents advice from the MPS and historic tax credit advisors, as well as an experienced historic tax credit developer and a veteran window installer. The advice includes pointers on determining window condition, replacing windows, and handling conflicts between health and safety regulations and historic requirements. This article is featured in the complimentary online version of the Journal of Tax Credits. You can receive this or access this complimentary online version at www.novaco.com. For even more information about the Historic Tax Credit to renovate property, consider ordering Novogratic & Company's Historic Rehabilitation Handbook. The 2009 edition incorporates several improvements to the Historic Tax Credit that came with the passage of the Housing and Economic Recovery Act of 2008. The book also includes a comprehensive discussion of the issues related to charitable donations of façade easements, as well as provisions contained in the Gulf Opportunity Zone Act of 2005, and includes a chapter on gap for accounting for the historic tax credit. Details are available at www.novacode.com products. And if you have specific questions about the historic tax credit, please give my partner Tom Bosch a call. He's in our Cleveland office. Turning to Renewable Energy Tax Credits. Last week, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee Chairman Jeff Bingaman and Small Business and Entrepreneur Committee Ranking Member Olympia Snow introduced S-3935, the Advanced Energy Tax Incentives Act of 2010. I note that Senator Bingaman is a Democrat and Senator Snow is a Republican, so this is a bipartisan bill. Among other things, the bill would extend the offshore wind production tax credit, it would provide that the Section 45 Cap-L Energy Efficient Credit would apply to long income tax credit properties. It would provide an additional $2.5 billion in Section 48 Cap-C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credits. It would allocate $1 billion for a new tax credit similar to the 48 Cap-C credit that would promote efficiency in existing facilities. It would authorize $1.5 billion for energy storage property connected to the grid, and make such property eligible for clean renewable energy bonds, and it would modify the existing carbon capture and storage tax credit, as well as increase the credit and ceiling levels. Now, upon introduction, the bill was referred to the Senate Finance Committee. Senators Bingham and Snow are senior members of that committee, as well as Senator Bingaman being chairman of its subcommittee on Energy, Natural Resources, and Infrastructure. Both Senators have been very supportive of developing tax incentives for renewable energy. In a statement about the bill released last week, Senators Bingham and Snow urged their colleagues to take up and pass the bill before Congress adjourns in December. So they're urging them to take up the bill during the lame duck session. A summary of S-3935 can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. Also last week, Senators Maria Cantwell, Patty Murray, Ben Nelson, and Bernie Sanders introduced the Clean Renewable Energy Investment Act of 2010. This bill seeks to create jobs and spur economic growth by removing the limit on the amount of tax credit bonds that consumer-owned public utilities can issue for clean and renewable energy projects. The Clean Renewable Energy Bonds Program was originally created in 2005 by Congress. Clean Renewable Energy Bonds are bonds that pay investors tax credits instead of interest which delivers an incentive to public power providers by lowering their cost of financing renewable energy projects. The Clean Renewable Energy Investment Act removes the existing cap on the amount of these bonds that can be issued by the nation's consumer-owned public power providers and cooperative electric companies. Supporters of the bill say this will level the playing field with investor-owned for-profit utilities, which have been able to take advantage of tax and programs not available to tax-exempt utilities. The bill's sponsors say that uncapping the bonds will mean billions of dollars in additional clean energy investment. And following up on a topic from a previous podcast, I would like to briefly revisit the potential effect of the financial reform bill on banks' ability to participate as tax equity investors in renewable energy projects. In the September 2010 issue of its Project Finance Newswire, Chadburn and Park LLP present an edited transcript of a discussion between five industry experts about the potential effects of the bill on the project finance market. The discussion was originally held on a conference call that was hosted by Chadburn and listened to by more than 1,100 industry members. The five experts are John Eber, Managing Director of Energy Investments for J.P. Morgan Capital Corporation, Thomas Emmons. Managing Director and Head of Project Finance Lending at the New York branch of RoboBank, James Metcalf, Global Head of Power and Utilities at UBS Investment Bank, Marshall Salant, Managing Director, Citigroup Global Markets, and John Schelk, President and CEO of the Electric Power Supply Association. The discussion was moderated by Keith Martin with Chadburn in Washington, D.C. In a broad sense, the group agreed that the intent of the Financial Reform Act is to regulate short-term trading accounts of the banks and hedge funds, as well as private equity funds, and not long-term fixed project investments, which they believe tax qu- equity investments to be. They also agree the new law is not intended to negate the purposes of tax credit programs that provide incentives to invest in renewable energy. However, they were quick to warn that the industry won't be able to measure the full extent of the bill until the actual rules mandated by the law are written. It is expected that those rules will be drafted over the next six months or so. Now, in related news, the Financial Stability Oversight Council convened its first meeting last week. The Council was established under the Dodd-Frank Act to provide comprehensive monitoring of the nation's financial system. At that first meeting, the Council approved a notice and request for information regarding the Volcker Rule study and recommendations will continue to follow the development of the regulations mandated by the reform bill and will monitor the comments that they receive with respect to the vocal Rule. In the meantime, a copy of Chadburn and Park's Project Finance Newswire can be found online at www.chadburn.com. And if you have related renewable energy tax credit questions, please contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, in our San Francisco office. In tax credit tidbits this week, we have news regarding two West Coast tax credit syndication firms. First, last week, National Equity Fund announced that it has acquired Homestead Capital, an Oregon-based regional syndicator of low-income housing tax credits. The National Equity Fund, NEF, is based in Chicago and is a national not-for-profit LIHTC syndicator and is an affiliate of the local initiative support corporation, LISC, the nation's largest community development support organization. Homestead Capital is based in Portland, Oregon, and has made $483 million in affordable housing investments across nine states. NEF will integrate Homestead into its existing operations, maintaining its Portland presence as part of NEF's Northwest Acquisitions and Asset Management Strategy. In a statement about the acquisition, NEF says the transaction was fueled, in part, by the recent economic turbulence, which has hit some state and regional syndicators hard. As NEF's affiliate, Homestead Capital will continue to play a meaningful role as a catalyst for the development of quality affordable housing in the Northwest. And then with respect to our other West Coast uh, sponsor, City Michael Costa and High Ridge Partners, a privately held real estate investment company, announced last week that they've agreed to form a new company operating as High Ridge Costa Housing Partners. The new company will own general partnership interests in and manage an existing $3.4 billion low-income housing tax credit portfolio, and will pursue new opportunities. The portfolio of properties were originally syndicated by Simpson Housing out of Long Beach. City is contributing a previously foreclosed portfolio, and High Ridge Partners is providing required new equity capital, as well as providing global capital markets relationships and strategic financial management counsel. Michael Costa is bringing a highly regarded business operations and strategic planning background and significant experience in tax credit syndication and affordable housing development. High Ridge Costa will, through a separate operating company, continue to develop new affordable communities under the Housing Tax Credit Program, primarily in California. The company reports that it already has seven projects in various stages of pre-development and will be submitting applications for several of them in California's next allocation round. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. This is Tax Tuesday podcast 150. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening.